We're turning again to Revelation in the chapter 2 as we look this morning at Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. But before we come to God's word, let's unite together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now into the pages of Holy Scripture, we remember that this is not an ordinary book. It is a living book, and it speaks living words to our souls. And Father, we need a living word today. We want to hear the voice of God. We need it. Father, we live in a world that would seek to tempt us and corrupt us. We have a body of flesh that is continually warring against our souls. And we need strength today. And we thank thee that as we feast upon the word, it is food to give us strength and nourish us for the week that lies ahead. And Lord, we know that as we come to this letter to the church at Ephesus, Lord, there's a real challenge. There's life and death matters before us. And we pray today, Father, that we will see the severity of thy word and that thou will come and even cause us to be those who are challenged and blessed as we ponder these things today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, dear friend, let me ask today, how would you feel if you received a letter from Christ personally addressed to you? Would you be excited, nervous? Would there be that sense of curiosity as you held the letter in your hand? Well, in John's vision, the book of the Revelation, he has given a message from Christ to the seven churches in Asia. Now, let's be clear about this. These are real churches that have existed historically and these are real places in history and there were real people who were going to hear those letters read out by their minister but we can also say that this is not just a history lesson because these seven churches have all something very different and very special about them and the message that Christ had to these seven churches historically are messages that apply to the church of Jesus Christ today. So this letter that Christ wrote and passed through the Apostle John to the church of Ephesus is as relevant to us who are living today as it was to those in Ephesus nearly 2,000 years Ago. Now, each letter is different. Some churches received commendations from Christ, and other churches received rebuke. Some churches were persecuted, and others were not. It's hard to say that every letter applies to us in our exact state today. But there will be phases in our Christian life and there will be phases in the life of the church where we will pass from uh, being perhaps like the church of Ephesus today and maybe being like the church at Smyrna tomorrow. But I believe the first letter that Christ wrote to the church of Ephesus 
was not just a matter of geography. I believe it was a matter of the utmost importance. Because Christ is dealing with something here that was prevalent in the church of Ephesus. But if we're honest, it's been prevalent in the church of Jesus Christ down through the ages and continues in the church of Jesus Christ in some form or measure today. So this first letter is to the church in Ephesus. Now where was Ephesus? Well, Ephesus was a major city in Asia. We would know it today as modern-day Turkey, on the west coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Back 2,000 years ago, it's estimated that around 600,000 people lived in the city. It had the largest temple to the Diana, the false goddess of the Ephesians. It harbored, or sorry, its harbor accommodated the largest ships of its day, making it a prosperous commercial city, and it was famous for its wealth, power, but also its superstition and idolatry. <clears throat> but in this city, there's a Christian church. It was commenced in AD 52, after the Apostle Paul visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. He left Priscilla and Aquila in charge of this church, and we are told that Apollos ministered there with great zeal also. On his third missionary journey, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. And when he left around AD 57, he had that touching farewell with the elders of Ephesus we read off in Acts 20. But somewhere around AD 60 to 63, Paul sent his epistle to the church of Ephesus. And after his first release from prison, Paul visited the church and he left Timothy in charge. Well, around AD 66, the Apostle John is with the church. And it is to the church of Ephesus that Christ writes a letter some 40 years after it was first commenced. <clears throat> but who is the letter addressed to? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, that word angel can also be translated messenger. <clears throat> and heavenly angels, those who did not fall with Lucifer, heavenly angels are messengers of God who minister to God's chosen people. But Christ cannot be writing to a heavenly angel because they are not responsible for the matters of the gospel. James Durham wrote this, the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to the heirs of salvation, but they do not have the everlasting gospel to preach. This treasure is put in earthen vessels so that the excellence of its power may be of God. So whenever Christ writes to the angel, he's not writing to an angelic being. No, he's writing to a man. But who is this angel or messenger in the church? Well, the angel or messenger is one within the church who has the responsibility of being God's messenger to the congregation. So very simply, it could only be the minister or the pastor. He has the responsibility of being God's messenger, or as it's translated here, angel, before the congregation. That's his responsibility, to bring the word from God every week to the people, whether the people want to hear it or not. 
So whenever you come to the book of Revelation and you see unto the angel here, the Lord Jesus Christ is telling John, give this message to the preacher and tell the preacher, read this letter to the congregation. Now I'm sure if you've read some of these letters, there were maybe some words from Christ that caused the preacher to blush. Maybe thinking, I can't read that to the congregation. They'll not like it. They'll hate me. But the job of the minister is not to bring the message that the people want to hear, to bring the message the people need to hear. So what is the purpose of this letter? Well, verse 2, Christ says to the church of Ephesus, I know. Two words there. I know. Christ is aware of everything that has happened in Ephesus, and he's aware of everything that is happening in Ephesus. He knows the good. He knows the bad. And it's a reminder here that Christ is the omnipotent God. He knows about his church. He cares about his church. He has an interest in what's going on. He hasn't just vanished away and say, I'll come back at a future date and see how you're getting on. No, Christ knows what is going on in his church all of the time. We often picture Christ walking amongst these candlesticks like a policeman. Maybe tapping his baton upon his hand, looking over his glasses at that church and at that church. But Joel Beakey, who's a pastor up in Grand Rapids, he makes the observation that Christ is not walking like a policeman. He's more like a careful gardener, observing his vine, rooting out weeds, feeding his churches, watering, protecting. He's not the policeman. He's the tender, compassionate gardener. Well, Christ is not writing to this church of Ephesus in judgment. He's writing to this church in compassion. Because, dear friends, that is how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with us, his people, in compassion and in grace. But what is he writing about? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is writing to this church of Ephesus about a very serious matter. He's writing to a church and a people who have left their first love. A people who once had a love for Christ that was like a burning fire. It was uh, exceedingly great, but now it has grown cold. In fact, it's such a serious matter that this is a love that might not even exist in their hearts anymore. So whenever we say that this was the first letter, and it's probably the most important, dear friend, this is a serious matter. Because you and I, we cannot live as Christians without loving Christ. You and I cannot ever expect to be in heaven if we don't love Christ. This really is a fundamental matter of the gospel. We don't love Christ for what he's done for us. We love Christ for who he is. And Christ was writing to a church that had left its first love. Remember I said if Christ was to write a letter to you today, what would it say? Well, Christ wrote to this church saying you've left your first love. If he wrote a letter to us today, personally and privately, to you or to me, Would he say the same thing to us? Would he say to you or me, you've left your first 
love. Well, let us examine today this letter to the church, but let us also examine today our own hearts and see, do we love Christ or have we left our first love? The first thing I want to say today about the church that left its first love, four things. The first thing is the praise they received from Christ. And there's three things about the praise they received from Christ we're going to look at. First of all, Christ praised them for their duty. <clears throat> Verse 2, he said, I know thy works and thy labor. Now this work, labor, speaks of hard toil. This isn't a church that is sitting around playing bowls, playing cards, playing dominoes. This is a church that's active in their religious duty. They're probably faithful in their evangelism, probably faithful in other ministries of helping the, the sick and visiting uh, those who are afflicted. Uh, one writer, John Stott, he called this church a beehive of activity. And the Lord Jesus Christ commends this church for these things. He, say, he doesn't say their labor's wrong. He doesn't say it's bad. He's commending them for it. He's saying it's good. I know your works. I know your labor. And I'm praising you for it. I don't know if you have something like this here, but in our Houses of Parliament in the United Kingdom, members of the Parliament who are not part of the government, they sit on the back benches. They're known as backbench MPs. They're either too much trouble to bring into the government or they're uh, too quarrelsome. But they're known as backbenchers. They sit at the back benches. They're not overly involved. Well, the Bible doesn't speak anywhere of backbench believers. In fact, we are always to be a people and a church that is faithful in our duty. We are, it falls upon every believer to be active in our duty. To say, Lord, what would you have me to do? How would you have me to work for you and labour for you? Being a Christian isn't coming to church on a Sunday and say, that's my work and labour done. No, dear friend. God has a role for every one of us to do. And he wrote to this church at Ephesus, I know thy works and thy labor. And he praised them for their duty. He also praised them for their doctrine. <clears throat> Verse 2, he says, And how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Christ praised this church at Ephesus for taking a stand for sound doctrine. Now these people in Ephesus, they don't just take a stand for sound doctrine. They know their doctrine. Whenever somebody comes with a false doctrine, they know their Bible well enough and they know their teaching well enough to know that that's wrong. And they take a stand against it. They stand up to those who would corrupt the word of God and they do so faithfully. And if you notice... The church has actually administered discipline upon those who are falsely teaching heresy. Or who are teaching heresy. Verse 2, he says, thou hast tried them. He says, you find those in the church who are bringing in their false teaching. And you know that it's wrong. And you've stood up against them. And you've tried them. You've put them out. This was a church who listened to the warning that Paul gave them in his farewell in Acts 20. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost 
Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. So the elders took note of what Paul was saying. Paul says there's going to be wolves come in. And they were faithful and holding firm to the word of God. Sadly, Christ could not praise many churches for this stand today. We live in an age which advocates toleration and respect. And that is fine up to a certain point. But dear friend, it's not fine whenever it comes to the teaching of the Bible. If the Bible says that you're born a man or a woman, it's very simple. You're born a man or a woman. If uh, the Bible says a man's only to marry a woman and not a man, that's very simple. It's the end of the matter. We don't need toleration on these issues. If the Bible says that there's such a place of hell and those who die in their sins will go there, then dear friend, that is the truth and we cannot waver or err on that. The Bible says there's no more apostles than there are no more apostles. Sadly, many churches will embrace every teaching of the day as long as it brings people in their doors. And numbers and not faithfulness has become the main priority. Well, Christ praised this church of Ephesus for their doctrine. And dear friend, we always have to be those who hold firm to the word of God. We have to maintain our stand that we believe this book and we will not err from it. And if somebody comes in with some contrary teaching, dear friend, we're to be found faithful in standing for the word. But notice, he doesn't just pray, Christ doesn't just praise this church for their duty and their doctrine. He praises them for their diligence. Verse 3 he says, and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has laboured, and has not fainted. Now that term born means endured. He's praising them for enduring against opposition from the ungodly world around them. From the idolaters who are probably looking them to come and join with them in worshipping the goddess Diana. From the Nicolaitans who are seeking to bring false doctrine into the church. It's very easy to compromise when everyone else is against you. It's very easy to have a quiet life and follow the crowd. But this church wouldn't do that. This was not a weak, soft church seeking to compromise with the age it lived in. No, this was a church busy in duty, faithful in doctrine, firm in opposing error, and diligent in standing for Christ in an evil and wicked city. And Christ praises them for these things. Now while this church has a serious fault that we're going to come to, Christ had much to praise this church for. And this church is to be commended for these things. But could I ask here today, could Christ praise us here in Orlando for those things? Would he praise us for being faithful in our duty, in our doctrine, and in our diligence? In the world around us. What about as individuals? If Christ was to write that letter to you or me. Or to sit down privately with you or me. Would we receive that same praise. And commendation. If not. Then dear friends we should be working. To ensure that he can praise us. For these things. 
It's no good just saying, oh, well, I've failed in this aspect. I'll just give up. I'll sit down. I'll see out my days. No, dear friend. If you've fallen off the horse, you get back on. If you've failed to maintain your, your diligent stand for the Lord, start today. Taking that stand for him again. The praise they received from Christ. Secondly, here today, the problem they were rebuked for. Look at verse 4. Christ says, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Three things here. Notice, first of all, the source who identifies the problem. And it's Christ. It's the Savior himself. The head of the church. The one who comes and says, I have somewhat against thee. Remember, dear friends, Christ is aware of all the thoughts of the heart. He's the all-seeing, all-knowing God. And he doesn't just see our outward actions. He sees our inward thoughts too. He knows when our love has grown cold. In fact, he will know about it before we even know about it. Christ is the one who identifies the problem in this church. And just as the wife is grieved whenever she feels her husband doesn't love her like he once did, so Christ feels the same. He looks down upon this church at Ephesus and he remembers the burning love that they once had for him, how how he was the, the object of their affections and the desire of their heart. But not anymore. Oh, they still have their duty, they still have their doctrine, and they're still diligent in taking their stand for him. But it's not that out of love. The source who identifies the problem is Christ. But notice the substance of the problem. Verse 4. Thou hast left. It wasn't Christ who left the church. It is this church who has left Christ. We could call it abandonment, couldn't we? Not physical abandonment, but emotional abandonment. Do you know a husband can abandon his wife? Without physically abandoning her. Oh he can still give her money for food. He can still give her money for clothes. He can still take her on holiday. And and eat the meals that she cooks. And sit in the same room as her of an evening. But if his affections and emotions. Are not towards his wife anymore. If his relationship. Has come nothing more than routine. Rather than a loving passion. He's abandoned her. Well this church. Has abandoned Christ. It's lost its love for Christ. Remember they've not abandoned him physically. All the outward actions are still there. But in the heart. This church is no longer captivated by his love for her. This church has slipped into the habit of going through. The religious motions. Doing all the right things. But not for the right reasons. It's all familiarity, but it's no longer done with a passionate love. And dear friend, I tell you today that perfect service and perfect doctrine without love are meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Why should we love Christ more and more? Because each day we should be meditating more and more upon Calvary. Each day we should be remembering with greater gratitude 
that our Saviour had to go up that hill and had to be nailed to that tree because of our sin. We should be remembering with a broken heart that it was our iniquity that caused the Son of God to come and to die for us. And dear friend, whenever we take a day and we don't think of Calvary, whenever we take a day and forget that the Son of God endured the wrath of the Father for us, our hearts will grow cold. We should love him more because he's still working for us. He's still interceding in our behalf in heaven. He's still praying for us this day. And we should love him more because he's coming again for us. He hasn't abandoned us. No, he's paid the penalty for our sin. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He's coming again for us. And he will come again. Either in his second coming or in death, he will come for us. And we should look forward to his coming again. But how does something like this happen? Well, it seldom happens overnight. That our love for Christ grows cold. It creeps in slowly. Oh, the importance of prayer diminishes. Where once we prayed for a sustained period every day, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Our appetite for reading the Bible once we hungered to get into the word. And then it becomes a formality. Once we rushed out to church with great desire and a passion to sing the praise of God. And to sit under the preaching of the word. It suddenly becomes just routine. A love for the teaching of God's word for our own edification becomes a love for pride knowledge that we can uh, flaunt over others. Self-examination of our own hearts and our own walk with God turns into an examination of other people. Whenever I was a young boy and a not-so-young boy, I used to love watching a a TV program, The A-Team. And you'll know one of the characters, and that was uh, Mr. T. And I've always found him a fascinating character. And I found out recently that he was a Christian, a professing Christian. And I was uh, reading on his Twitter account uh, some time ago there that he had put up this post. Lord, please give Pastor so-and-so a word from you to, uh, in church today, because I badly need it. Here's one of the toughest men on the planet saying, God, give the pastor a word because I badly need it. That's what we need to be. People who are hungering after Christ. And whenever we stop hungering after him, and whenever we we lose that passion for him that we once had, dear friends, we're growing cold. That's what happened in this church. For 40 years this church in Ephesus was so faithful. You'd think after 40 years and all the success that they've had, their duty, their doctrine, their diligence, Christ would be commending them saying, you're doing really well, keep it up. But there's a problem. Sometimes 
The fire burns the brightest whenever something is new, isn't it? We know that in our own experience of conversion. We sing that hymn, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? We remember the passion and the zeal that we had as early believers and and we're always hungering after that again. Sometimes it can be the same in a church. Whenever a church is new, there's a buzz, there's an excitement around it, but whenever the church becomes settled, we get into our routine and we can go through the motions. This is what happened in Ephesus. The whole substance of their problem was they left their first love. But notice the seriousness of the problem as well. The seriousness of the problem is that not loving Christ is a sin. And we cannot conclude that it's anything else. Not loving Christ is a sin. In Matthew 22, 37, Christ said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And dear friend, if we don't love Christ with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, we're breaking the first commandment and it doesn't matter how many other commandments we keep, we've broken the first one. And it's serious. Because this is the very heart of our relationship with Christ. Without a true and genuine love for him, everything else is vanity. Whenever Peter had failed Christ by denying him, as the Lord prophesied he would, the Lord didn't come to him in John 20 and say, Peter, will you now go and confess my name before others? He didn't say, Peter, will you go and have boldness to preach the gospel before my enemies? That wasn't the care concern of Christ. The one question that Christ had upon his heart that he asked Peter three times was this Simon son of Jonas lovest thou me and dear friend that's the only thing that really matters do we love Christ Christ was to come to us today would he ask us And asked us that same question. Lovest thou me? What would our response be? Remember he knows our heart. He can see into our heart. What would our response be? But notice the hope that is given here. Christ says to this church at Ephesus. Thou hast left. You've left. You haven't lost. You've left your first love. You haven't lost your first love. And dear friend, the great hope is here. If you've left something, you can return to it. You can get it back. And dear friend, I tell you today, if you've left your first love, if you've left Christ, you can get him back today. The church that left its first love, the praise they received from Christ, The problem they were rebuked for. But notice thirdly here today. The priority they were to restore. Three things about the priority that they had to restore. First of all they had to remember. Verse 5. 
Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember. Do you know, memories are a gift from God. Sometimes our flesh can use them sinfully to promote sin in our hearts. But they can also be a blessing to remind us of the good and happy times in our Christian life. Those intimate times of communion with Christ. Those times of his warm presence and our hearts were burning on fire for him. Well, Christ is urging this church. He says, remember. Remember the state that you you were in many years ago when you loved me. He's urging this church to recall those times when their hearts were overwhelmed for love for him. When the fervent love they once had was the motivation behind all their duty and their doctrine and their diligence. And he urges us the same as well. Remember. Remember from where you're fallen. Get back. The second priority they had to restore was repent. Verse 5. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent. Now before this church could be restored to Christ to their first love. There had to be repentance. Now repentance is not a popular teaching. In the church of Jesus Christ today. In fact, many churches shy away from preaching repentance. They don't want to upset people. They don't want people going out feeling bad about themselves. Uh, The the preacher doesn't want people not to like him because he's preaching about that nasty stuff called repentance. But dear friends, the truth is, without repentance we have no relationship with God at all. Sinners must repent before they receive Christ and Christians must repent when we grieve Christ. And this church was being told to repent. Repentance involves self-reflection. Examining our hearts. Examining our loves. And our motivations. Do we only engage in religious duty. So other people will think we're super spiritual. Do we seek the elevation of our own name in the church. Before the name of Christ. Do we do everything. In church and in our own personal and private lives for the glory of God or for our own selfish desires. Repentance means examining ourselves. And once we examine ourselves and we find the root problem that we have. Repentance means asking God to forgive it. But it also means turning away from it and not doing it anymore. So Christ is telling this church to repent. Repent of your coldness. Repent of the fact that you've left me. And come back to me. This church was told to remember, to repent. They were also told to resume. Verse 5. Christ says to them, And do the first works. Christ is teaching this church that they must get back to the first work of loving him. Do the first work. And dear friend, the first work is loving Christ. Because this is the fountain from which all other works flow. If we don't have love for Christ, we have no foundation. So it doesn't matter what else we do. It's all meaningless. It's all a religion of works. Our love for Christ is like that plant in the pot. It needs to be continually nurtured. 
If you leave it to itself, it will dry up, it will wither, it will rot, it will decay. It needs sunlight, water, pruning protection. Our love for Christ needs nurture. So how do we nourish our love for Christ? You spend time with him. You talk to him in prayer. You hear from him in his word. You meditate upon him. Your love for Christ will not be nourished if you sit and spend a day watching a box set on the television. Your love for Christ will not be nourished if you're so busy planning and engaging in even non-sinful things of the world that he gets neglected and forgot about. Do the first works. Nourish your love for him. Don't let your love for him grow cold. If we have left our first love, we must make it our priority to find it again. Fourthly and finally here today, notice the price for leaving their first love. Verse 5, Or else I will come unto thee quickly, And will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thy repent. Dear friend, there's a price for leaving the first love. Now the candlestick is not salvation here. We don't believe that. But we do believe it's Christ's love and support. Because Christians can lose the felt presence of God. They can lose the illumination of the Holy Spirit in their daily lives. Those who are truly Christ's people and heirs appointed to salvation will never be lost, but the heirs of salvation will have this mark upon them that they love Christ. Dear friend, I tell you today, there is a very, very thin line between somebody who is backslidden and somebody who is apostatized. The heirs of salvation will love Christ. Many in the church today get labelled as backsliders. Oh, they stop coming to church, stop reading their Bible. They're just backslidden. How do we know it's not apostasy? Oh, it might not be outward believing the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church or the Mormons or something like that, but in their heart they're saying, I don't need God. I can live without him. Some people think that Christ cannot judge his church until his second coming. But I don't believe that to be true. Christ can visit his church with chastisement at any time. These seven letters are a warning of that. John Stott said again, No church has a secure and permanent place in the world. It is continuously on trial. Christ is always examining his church. So what happened to the church of Ephesus here? Well, Bishop Ignatius of Antioch noted that this church rallied after this appeal from Christ. So they responded well to the letter from Christ. But then in the Middle Ages, it lapsed again. Today, There is no city of Ephesus, let alone a church. Christ removed the candlestick. 
John Stott said again, Our own church's life will be extinguished if we stubbornly persevere in our refusal to love Christ. The church has no light without love. Only when its love burns can its light shine. And that's true, dear friend. Only when its love burns can its light shine. There was a price for leaving their first love. Except thou repent, I will remove thy candlestick. Coming to a close here today. There are many things that make a Christian and many things that make a church. Like a cake, there's many ingredients. But there's one thing that is essential above all other things in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. And it has to be this. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. It must be first and foremost. He must be the object of our hearts. He must be the one who has all our desires and all our affections personally and collectively. Samuel Rutherford, in challenging men about their love for Christ, said, if you saw him, he is standing on the shore, holding out his arms to welcome you in land. Would you not only wade through a sea of wrongs, but would you not wade through hell itself to be with him? Lack of love for Christ was not isolated to Ephesus 1900 years ago. It's been an epidemic in its church since the inception. And I believe that this is listed as the first rebuke to the churches because it is the most serious problem and it's also the most common problem. Well, dear friends, if Christ had to write to us this day, maybe there's many things he would commend us for. He would commend us for our duty, for our doctrine and for our diligence in standing against the world. But would he have to rebuke us for leaving our first love? Christ was writing to us personally. Would this be the charge that will be leveled against us? If it is, dear friend, we are not those without hope. Remember, repent, and return. And may God grant us the grace to do so. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank thee today that the Lord Jesus Christ loves his church so much that he cares for it so much that he has his eye ever upon it that he even writes to us in this loving rebuke and Lord should there be a heart amongst us today that has left its first love we pray for thy call upon the soul we pray for repentance and we pray that thou will return that soul to its first love write thy word upon us and let us never think, Lord, oh, that's a word for someone else, Lord, but let us search our hearts, whether it's a word for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.